Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Beginning today, Dr. Neufeld will be presenting the newest volume of his Roman series entitled The Progress of the Gospel. In this third volume of Romans, we'll be focusing on Romans chapter 9 to 11. So let's begin the progress of the gospel by opening our Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. In 1859, Charles Dickens released what was to become one of the greatest novels ever published in the English language. It was the novel The Tale of Two Cities. It centers on the events of London and Paris and the years leading up to the Jacobian reign of terror and the events surrounding the French Revolution. The novel begins with words that everyone seems to know, even if they've never read the book. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. You know, those remarkable words, so true of that time, can really be applied to another time. The time that starts with the death and resurrection of Jesus all the way to the present era. We do live in the best of times. We live in the era when the message of forgiveness through Jesus is available. The glad news of the gospel has slowly been going around the world, from a small band of Jesus followers in the first century up to the present era. The news of Jesus and his gospel is being preached in the most unlikely of places, and men and women from every race and tribe and language and tongue are finding their way into the kingdom of God. Churches are being planted. The news of Jesus is being declared, and today more people identify themselves as followers of Jesus than at any other time in human history. I don't know how any follower of Jesus can be anything but optimistic about what's happening. But the darkness and despair that Dickens applied to the years applying to the French Revolution are equally true of today. If you pay attention to the annual persecution watch list published by Open Doors, it's easy to see that there are indeed places around the world in which we have reason for concern. Furthermore, along with persecution from without, The concern over false teaching from within is also a reason to believe we are indeed in the very worst of times. It is the season of darkness. But had we taken Jesus seriously, we would not be surprised by the present state of affairs. Matthew was there to record Jesus, and he spoke the following words. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. How could we have missed it that the worldwide growth of the Church of the Savior would happen in the midst of the worst of times. But Jesus purposely gave us a picture of the seemingly impossible opposition, along with the people leaving the faith, along with false teaching, right along with global expansion of the church. And that brings me to the theme of the next four weeks. I've entitled this series based on Romans 7-9, to The Progress of the Gospel. 
But please stay with me while I place Romans 7 to 9 within the context of the book of Romans. For many Christians, the book of Romans seems like a bit of a formidable book. I know it's highly doctrinal, and we also know that it requires some patience to work our way through this book. But that should not detract us from this book, and here's why. The Apostle Paul, the great missionary to the Gentiles, the one who set the stage for worldwide evangelism, making the gospel available to people of every race and tribe and tongue, he's the one that wrote this book. This is the book from the pen of a man who thought about worldwide evangelism every single day. We also know that when he wrote this book, it was written to the Christian church in Rome, a church he didn't plant and a church he had never had the chance of visiting. Part of the reason for writing this book, which is in fact a letter to that church, was stated in Romans 15 verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And so Romans, as we can see, is written with the idea that Paul would become acquainted with the Christians in Rome and present them with his missionary plans for the nation of Spain, a nation that had never heard the gospel before. Imagine Paul showing up in Rome, telling of his vision for evangelizing Spain, and then appealing to the Roman Christians to become involved in this ministry. No doubt he needs funds, and no doubt he also wanted prayer support, and perhaps he wanted to establish a partnership in which they would be involved in some other way. In short, Romans is a missionary tract meant to inspire Christians to care about worldwide expansion of the gospel. And because Paul had never been in Rome, the book of Romans is a sample for the Roman Christians of what Paul would have preached everywhere he went. Romans is the gospel that Paul preached. Now, the book itself, I would argue, is rather easy to outline. The first four chapters, chapters 1 to 4, can be entitled The Heart of the Gospel. I call it that because these first four chapters define essential Christianity. If you want to know the basics of what Christianity is all about, read Romans 1 to 4. Those four chapters declare that the whole world is guilty of sin and rebellion against God, a God who is dreadfully provoked by human sin. Both Jews and Gentiles are equally guilty, although they get there a different way. Furthermore, Christ's death on the cross is a propitiation, that is, a wrath-bearing sacrifice whereby our sins can be forgiven. Then the book takes us to the next level and declares to us that we can receive this forgiveness by faith and by faith alone. I call that the heart of the gospel. It's Christianity 101. You have to know this. This is essential. All Christians should become experts in Romans 1 to 4 because it not only defines our faith, but it also equips us to share the gospel with others. Know Romans 1 to 4, and you know what to say when encountering those who desperately need to hear. This is missionary stuff. You know, the second section of Romans also covers four chapters. Whereas Romans 1 to 4 is called the heart of the gospel, Romans 5 to 8 can be called the power of the gospel. Since the heart of the gospel tells us how to be delivered from the bondage of sin, The power of the gospel spells out how we can live in such a way for a lifetime. Every believer can learn to count themselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. 
Furthermore, we can learn by the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death the enslavement of the flesh. Every believer can be given power to live victoriously as we await the future glory that will be revealed to us. That is rightfully called the power of the gospel. Now, skipping by Romans 9 to 11 for a moment, the last section of Romans, Romans 12 to 16, can be called the lifestyle of the gospel. Having shared the gospel with all its implications, the last five chapters of Romans speaks about the marks of Christian living, everything from walking in humility, to how to respond to those who persecute us, to how to relate to a non-Christian government, to how to react to fellow Christians who disagree with us over non-essential matters. In a sense, at least this is how some of us feel, in a sense, you might have a complete outline of the gospel without the contents of Romans 9 to 11. We would have the heart of the gospel and the power of the gospel and the lifestyle of the gospel, and that would sum up Christianity 101. But that wouldn't be enough for Paul. Remember, he's the missionary to the Gentiles. He's been planning a missionary journey to Spain, and he wants the Roman Christians involved. After all, for them, Spain was their neighbor, and they should have been thinking about Spain all the while. See, the gospel is meant for more than simply that which is to be believed and that which is to be lived out. The gospel has to include that which is shared with others. For Paul the missionary, the gospel has to move forward and it has to reach out. It has to grow until, as Jesus said, it is preached to every race and language and culture and people group. But how does the gospel actually advance? Is everything dependent upon human efforts? Because if it is, the gospel might fail. But Romans 9 to 11 tells us that God has been sovereignly arranging things so that the gospel will progress and reach out to the most unlikely of people. While it is true that the Roman church did have a sizable Jewish membership, it's also true that the majority of the church members in Rome were Gentiles. Romans. So if you read Romans 16, that chapter includes personal greetings and most of them are Romans. God, says Paul, has arranged this according to his plan from ages past. Romans 9 to 11 is rightfully called the progress of the gospel for it tells us what God is up to in order to grow His church. So what is Paul trying to tell us in these chapters? Perhaps there's more here for us than might first meet the eye. Let's discover some critical themes of Romans 9-11 to when Dr. Neufeld returns. You know, this month there is so much to tell you about, but I want to begin the month with offering you a gift— if you're listening today, you have the opportunity to ask for Dr. Newfeld's most recent series from the book of Psalms entitled Finding Forgiveness. Dr. Newfeld describes this series like this. If you've started out well and fallen into disgrace, is there no hope for you? If you have harmed others, are you now outside of grace yourself? If you once knew the passion that burns within, the passion to sacrifice all for Christ, but are now an individual who has brought reproach to the sacred name of him who claimed you as your Savior, is there hope for you? Well, I believe that I can offer you hope, healing, restoration, and a renewed passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So order your copy today for this great one-week series called Finding Forgiveness. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or email your request at info at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We live in interesting times. In our era after the Holocaust of World War II, since 1948, Israel has again become a nation. And as we all know, that has inspired some very interesting and very contentious politics. As a rule, the United States has been fairly pro-Israel, but other nations seem overwhelmingly anti-Israeli. Now, this broadcast is not a political program, nor are we going to study how the creation of Israel does or does not figure into end-time prophecy. I'm going to leave that end-time discussion to another day. But I mention Israel because Romans 9 to 11 is all about Israel. And today in our day, I am aware that in regard to the issue of Jewish settlements on the West Bank and other contentious matters that consume modern world leaders, it seems to me that it is right and proper that justice and fairness be given to all who live in that region. I mean, one thing is clear. The whole world is watching Israel. And some concerns are in order, for not everything that Israel does is automatically fair and just. But it does seem to me that when those who will not acknowledge Israel's right to exist offer up their criticism, a great deal of anti-Semitism is expressed. Old lies about the Jews are again revived and pressed into service. We've seen this in the statements made by more than one Middle Eastern leader and others in the West. But some people ask very different questions. Is it anti-Semitism to criticize the policies of the Israeli government? Should Christians agree with everything that Israel does? I mean, after all, the modern state of Israel is a secular state. I was recently in Israel and heard a guy tell us that Israel coming back to the promised land is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37. Again, not to engage in the politics of that question, but hear me. Ezekiel 37 declares a time when the 12 tribes of Israel are united, and that has not occurred in present-day Israel. Furthermore, Ezekiel 37 verse 24 says of the days when God brings Israel back, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall all walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Now that means that Israel has the Messiah ruling over them when they return in faithfulness to the Lord. See, modern day Israel is not that. I believe what Ezekiel describes is related directly to Christ's reign during the millennium, a period after the second coming of Jesus. But even while I don't ascribe God's righteousness to the present-day nation of Israel, I as a Christian cannot be indifferent to Israel as a nation nor to individual Jewish people. Christians need to take one step back and realize that we ourselves have some guilt to bear. The shameful treatment of the church in the Middle Ages toward the Jews is appalling. During the Inquisition, Jews were called upon, even upon the threat of death, to renounce their faith. Some in the Middle Ages church called the Jews Christ killers and poured out hatred against them. It's now been documented that during the Nazi Holocaust, when hatred against the Jews reached a demonic zenith, that some churches simply turned a blind eye to the Holocaust. And that leaves us with a question. 
given the shameful record of what some of the church has done in the past, how should Bible-believing evangelical Christians relate to Jews and to Israel today? How should we think about Jews who are not Christians? Should we be Zionists, as some Christians suggest? Should we be neutral, as others suggest? Now, someone will say, why are we talking about this? Well, we started a series on Romans 9 to 11. And those of you who have read those chapters might be tempted to say, I know what those chapters are all about. They're about predestination, and that's controversial. But hang on. Those chapters are a lot more controversial than that. Read Romans 9 to 11 carefully, and you'll find that although predestination is carefully explained, Predestination is not the only theme of this section of the Bible. The passage is about Israel and about the fact that the Jews in Paul's day, as in ours, that the majority of the Jews have rejected Jesus as their Messiah and King. And it is this fact that has troubled a great many Christians. If God has made eternal promises to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how can it be? that the vast majority do not welcome Jesus as the rightful heir of David's ancient throne. Indeed, for some, it is troubling when one reads the Bible. Why is it that the first 39 books of our Bible, called the Old Testament, or what I like to call the First Testament, because those 39 books are still relevant today, why is it that the First Testament seems like an overwhelmingly Jewish document? But with the Jewish rejection of the Messiah, the next 27 books of our Bible, or the New Testament, or the Second Testament, contains a story of the gospel going to the Gentile world. As the story of the Second Testament progresses, the story becomes Gentile and not Jewish. Why is that? And Paul's answer will be that God has planned it that way. And it was not an accident. God planned it that way so that the gospel would progress in a way that would never have been possible if Israel had welcomed their Messiah. The Jewish rejection of Jesus has meant riches for the Gentiles. Now, we're going to have to unpack that, and that's just what we will do. God has planned that the gospel would go forward, reaching people of every tribe and race and people and tongue in this unique way. But that will lead Paul to ask some very searching questions, and let me try to repeat some of those questions now. First, who are the true people of God? Now, please understand that this is the most fundamental and basic question. It's it's a part of Christianity 101 and an essential part of Paul's presentation of the heart of the gospel found in Romans 1 to 4. Listen to Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is for everyone who believes. That's key to understanding Romans. The people of God are those who have put their faith in Jesus, of Jews and of Gentiles. Let's go on to Romans 2, 9-12. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law, and that is, by the way, the Gentiles, 
will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that's the Jews, will be judged by the law. In other words, being a Jew does not exempt you from sin and from eternal judgment. God will not take into account your birth certificate on the day of judgment. But Romans presses this point further. Remember, Paul is himself a Jew, and so let's read Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Jews are not exempt from God's judgment on the basis of attachment to Abraham. Romans 3, 22-24 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, forgiveness, salvation, grace, freedom from sin, these are given to anyone who believes apart from Jewishness or Gentileness. That, folks, is the heart of the gospel. Now then, if that's so, then the people of God are the people of faith in Jesus Christ, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And if that's so, doesn't the Bible say that the Jews are God's chosen people? Well, yeah, it says that too. So then, what is Israel? Are they or are they not the people of God? Are there two people of God, or is there just one people of God? Now, here's what some of us are confused about, and some of us are ready to debate about, but listen to Ephesians 2, 14 to 15. It says, For he, that is Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. Now, the two men is the Jewish man and the Gentile man. And when Paul says Christ has broken down the division of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and in place of this has created a new race, he is speaking of the church of the Savior. And that all leads us back to how the gospel progresses or goes forward. How has God planned the global worldwide expansion of the gospel of Jesus? Has he rejected Israel? And to that last question, Paul will say, no, he's not. So prepare yourself for a wonderful mystery that gets declared in this chapter. And remember, this is about God's agenda of worldwide missionary expansion. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we study these marvelous three chapters that you, by your Holy Spirit, inspired, help us, Heavenly Father, to understand your heart better. Help us also, Heavenly Father, that we would gain the same heart that the gospel has to make your name and your gospel known to everyone that would hear. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Join us again tomorrow for this continuing series right here on Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The call to joining us this April for our New Testament Greece by land and by sea tour is coming to a close in the next number of weeks. And the reason being is the amazing response that has brought us nearly to 70% capacity. So I want to urge you that if you're considering joining Dr. John Newfeld and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, that you do so soon. I promise a journey that will inspire and refresh you spiritually as you experience incredible biblical locations both on land and by sea. So the dates are April 24th to May 5th. 
beginning in Athens and visiting some of the most incredible New Testament scenes. All the information you need can be received by calling us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or by checking out our events page at backtothebible.ca. And please be assured that all costs related to our ministry vacation events are met by those who participate and not through your gracious donations.